Hang on, so it's good to be here. Uh, good to be back again. Uh, I was just saying to folks that the last time I was here, uh, I think these were all facing that way, so I was over there, um, and I think these have moved in next door, and now these are back here. But it's good to be back. Uh, I always find it uh, quite kind of scary when the person who's booked is actually away. That's quite funny, eh? Uh, there's something to be said in that. Uh, what I want to do is, uh, I just want to show a very short video clip. Um, most of you have probably heard of the TV series ER, uh, an American kind of almost like an American equivalent to Casualty. Uh, this is a video clip that I seen uh, probably a couple of years ago actually, and it was quite a kind of profound clip. Uh, you don't really find many kind of profound moments in Casualty, to be fair. Uh, but this is something I felt was quite profound, so it's good if we could just watch that, um, and then after that I'll come up and uh, just share uh, what I'd like to bring to us today. Thank you. <coughs> Isn't it? It's important that in life's questions uh, that we get answers. And how frustrating is it uh, when people, like the woman in the clip, 
uh, say loads, uh, but in essence, don't really say anything. You know, we live in a world, uh, and the so-called Christian chaplain uh, that we've just seen in that ER clip, a secular uh, clip, really just shows uh, the kind of mistakes that the world is making uh, when it comes to faith and when it comes to belief. You know, I was looking um, in a book, it was when I was at Glow, uh, and one of the lecturers was telling us also that uh, one of the lecturers, um, I think, had been to something, it was Richard Dawkins, uh, the well-known atheist, um, and he was asked a question, uh, because he doesn't believe in God, uh, because he doesn't believe in absolutes, he doesn't believe that, you know, there is a God and and anyone to believe in, we're all just here, we've all just kind of spawned for wee frogs or whatever, Um, then they asked him the question, if that is your belief, if there's no moral absolutes, then if somebody had to come and rape and murder your wife, then what could you say about it? What would you say about it? And he had a good long think about it and he was, you know, he says, well, to be honest, he says, I would feel that it's wrong, but I couldn't condemn the person because although I feel that it's wrong, then they might feel something different. It's a pretty warped world in which we live. If somebody can believe something totally opposed to someone else, and the woman says in the clip, she says, it's up to you to find out what God requires of you. So that means that I can believe that Jesus Christ is the answer, and somebody else can believe it's Muhammad, but oh, we're all going to heaven. That's the way the world believes. Even if they don't believe in anything, they can believe in... I remember somebody talking about the fact that people who love to play golf, um, they've got you know, this kind of God that um, when they get to heaven is going to let them play golf all the time. You know, And people who believe in or uh, love other things, they, their God is, is someone who's going to be completely different. The Bible teaches us something very different. And what I'd like us to do uh, this morning is turn to a passage of Scripture. It's quite a well-known passage of Scripture uh, in Mark chapter 10. Um, And it's a passage that I don't believe is too far removed um, from the the clip that we've seen uh, in ER. It's a passage where there's a man who asks a question uh, about salvation. Uh, He receives an answer to that question. um, And very like the man in the the clip uh, that we've just saw, it goes away. Uh, very unhappy. It's Mark chapter 10, uh, verse 17 uh, to 22, and this is from the NIV uh, that I'm reading. It says, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. What I'd like us to do this morning, it always helps me in my preparation to just kind of have headings uh, to work with and hopefully it'll help you uh, in your understanding. So first heading, uh, I'd like us to look at this passage under is the heading of a significant question. A significant question. And I've got two questions for you. The first one is this. If Hercules... Samson and the Incredible Hulk all competed in a typing test for speed and for accuracy. Who would win? Hold that in your minds, have a wee think about that. Secondly, 
you're a famous artist and you're getting paid loads of money to make statues of beekeepers. But you're limited to just one of three items that you can make them with. Which would you pick out of bubble wrap, spam, pointy cactus or hair? You know, I'm not a mind reader and I don't believe in mind reading, but I can bet bottom dollar that you guys are thinking, Tommy, what are you talking about? <laughs> the questions are absolutely mince. They're the worst questions you've ever heard in your life. And you would be right to think that because these questions, as well as many other insignificant and irrelevant questions, come from a book aptly titled Life's Least Important Questions. I'm sure you would agree that they are two of life's least important questions. You know, I was looking on the internet and as I looked at this book, you know, Life's Least Important Questions, I was on Amazon and I was on the book depository and all these different sites and I couldn't yet find a book called Life's Most Important Questions. But I'll bet if there was a book in print called Life's Most Important Questions, this is a question that this man asks that should be in this book. What does the man say in verse 17 of what we read in Mark chapter 10? Jesus started on his way. A man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This isn't the kind of question that you just ask somebody as you're talking to them about the weather at the bus stop. You know, you just don't say, you know, it's quite a nice day, isn't it? You know, it's been, you know, sunny the last few days, it's raining. And by the way, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's, that's no, that you, you just don't ask these kind of questions, just kind of spur of the moment. This guy has been thinking about this for a long time. This guy has been mulling this over in his mind and suddenly he's heard that Jesus has come to town. And he believes that Jesus can give him the answer to this question. I think before we can go any further, we really need to understand what the question is all about. What is the man asking of Jesus when he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, I don't know what's going to happen. I think I seen yesterday that Michael Jackson hasn't yet been buried. I remember when Michael Jackson was living, that there was talk that Michael Jackson wanted to live forever. And what he was going to do with his body was whenever he died, he wanted it to be cryogenically frozen. So that if in the future they come up with any, you know, great things that could bring people back to life and allow you to, to live forever, then he was ready. They could just throw him out or whatever it is you do to people who are cryogenically frozen. And then that would mean that he could get this injection or whatever so that he could live forever. This guy isn't a kind of olden days Michael Jackson that wanted just to live forever here on earth. Neither is he someone who was thinking about eternal life just in relation to what comes next. In essence, what the man is asking about is a relationship with God. This is what John MacArthur uh, says in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus. Biblically, eternal life speaks not only of the promise of life in the ages to come, but of the characteristic of the redeemed. It signifies quality rather than duration. It's not just living forever, but eternal life is being alive to the realm where God dwells. It is walking with the living God in unending communion. We learn from the Gospels that this man has wealth. We learn from looking at all the Gospel accounts that he also has some sort of, kind of religious prominence in the land. And we also learn too that he's fairly young. So here's a guy who's young, a guy who's wealthy, and a guy who has got some sort of prominence round about where he is. But he realises that something's missing. He realises that although he's got all these things in his life that are going for him, 
There's something that is missing. And that is a relationship with Almighty God. You know, I think it's important just to pause here. Because there was a time, I'm now 27, I'm starting to feel old. There was a time 11 years ago where I asked this question, or a question very similar, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I asked that question and I realised that there was nothing more important in life than my relationship with Almighty God. But I wonder over the 11 years how that's changed. I wonder if being battered and beaten by church, by other people, be things that I think I've said to God and asked him for that he's no answered even though he has. I wonder if I still realise here today in Moody'sburn that the most important thing in my life isn't he my wife, isn't he my children, isn't he my job, isn't he all these other things. The most important thing in my life is my relationship with God. And I ask you as well to ask yourself that question. Is your Christian life, is your relationship with God something that's on the periphery? Is it something that if you wrote down in your diary, you know, here's this and here's this and here's this and here's this, your relationship with God would just be another wee add-on at the end, rather than the central core that everything else encircles around. This man realised that although he had youth, although he had prominence, although he had money, he needed a relationship with Almighty God. Jonathan Edwards, eh, not the triple jumper, but the Puritan, eh, says this about a relationship with God. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant things here on earth. Fathers and mothers, husband, wives, or even children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. God is the substance. They are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. They are but streams, but God is the ocean. Therefore it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven, as it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good the whole work of our lives, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labour for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? I wonder here today if we're willing to look at our own lives and maybe reassess. As I say, I've been saved for 11 years. I wonder how long it is for you. And just reassess where God is in your life. Is he right there at the centre? Right there is your focus and everything else. What does it say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these things shall be added unto you. Are you focusing on all these other things? And God is just kind of in there in the mix. This man realised that he needed a relationship with God. The second heading I'd like us to look under, uh, the second of two, the man asks a significant question. And Jesus gives him, I believe, a straight answer. Most of you know that uh, I'm married to Fiona. And we've got two children. Uh, Caleb is now four years old. He was four in July. Uh, and Daniel, he's now eight months. And very often, as I'm sure you can imagine, uh, Caleb's four, so he's, he's very often getting a row uh, for either me or his mother. And very often what will happen is, we'll say to Caleb, you know, certainly when he was a bit younger and when Daniel was a bit younger, he would go up and torment Daniel because uh, he knew that Daniel couldn't bop him one. Uh, but I'm saying to him that when Daniel's a bit bigger, that's gonna, he's going to remember all these things. What will happen is he'll go up and he'll annoy him and he'll torment him and I'll say, Caleb, you'll need to stop that. 
and he'll do it again and I'll say Caleb right that's it we're meant to be going to the soft play later on in the day if you do that again we're not going to the soft play he'll do it again and I'll say right that's it go to your room you're not going to the soft play anymore and he cries he goes into a tantrum he screams he pulls the place down and then a wee while later he comes back and he says daddy I'm sorry what do you think the next words are that come out of his mouth can I go to the soft play <laughs> we can all say the right thing can't we but for entirely the wrong reasons Caleb isn't saying sorry because he's thinking oh dad I've really offended you and oh I really love you Caleb's saying sorry because he wants to get to the soft play he's not thinking about anybody else or anything else in this he wants to go to that soft play and he's prepared to do whatever it takes to get there can I suggest that the man in the passage before us isn't he that different to Caleb in this area? Because although he comes to Jesus and asks exactly the right question, he asks it in entirely the way you would expect somebody. He comes to Jesus and he kneels down at his feet almost worshipfully asking Jesus this question. But as we read on, I believe that we can see that it was maybe a wee bit self-centred. It maybe wasn't he thinking about Jesus, his authority or anything like that. He was thinking more about himself. We don't notice in the passage that this man mentions anything about his sin. This isn't the, the tax collector who was there next to the Pharisee who was crying out and saying, God have mercy on me. We don't see anything like that from this man here. This man comes up and asks Jesus a question. And doesn't he realise that he doesn't yet have a relationship with God because God is perfect and he is imperfect. I mentioned John MacArthur earlier. He again it says this. He says, this man's desire for salvation appears to be based purely on an emptiness in his soul. Perhaps with a desire to get rid of anxiety and frustration and to attain love, joy, peace and hope. This is a good desire, but does not constitute a valid reason for committing yourself to Christ. You know, I can bet, let see if this man had came to the chaplain in the clip that we saw at the beginning. Because he was so sincere, because he was asking the right question, this chaplain would have said, look pal, you've made it. You're asking the right questions. In fact, I think you've already got eternal life because you're just, you've made it. Everything's okay, all the, the boxes seem to be ticked. Is that what Jesus says to the man? Is Jesus willing to let this man believe that he's got salvation? That he's got eternal life even though he hasn't? Is Jesus allowing this man to live a lie? You know, if I'm eating my dinner in the house very often, uh, the only thing I can really make is spaghetti bolognese. If I'm eating spaghetti bolognese in the house, and very often is the case that I end up with it all around my mouth and some of it actually goes in my mouth. But if my wife says to me, Tommy, you've got spaghetti bolognese around your mouth, I'm going to say, where, where is it? And she'll say, oh, it's here, it's here, and I can't really see it. So what she ends up saying to me, she's got one of these weak in a makeup mirrors. She says to me, Tommy, here's a mirror so that you can wipe off that mark for your face. Without that mirror, I can't see where it is to be able to wipe off the mark. Jesus, in the passage before us, I believe, hands this man a mirror so that he can see the sin in his life. He's came to Jesus, no mention of sin, no mention of anything like that, and Jesus says, here's a mirror so that you can see the sin in your life. Then, and only then, will you be able to receive eternal life. What does he do? He compares him to God's character. 
What does he say? He says, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God. After comparing them to God's character, he compares them to the commandments. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Do not defraud, honour your father and mother. This man lived in an age where people were comparing themselves to one another. He was a religious leader. He was a guy who had religious prominence. He would have been looking about at the the tax collectors and everybody else and thinking, I'm actually quite okay here. I'm actually doing quite well. You know, I'm reading a book at the moment and it's called Nazis, A Warning from History. And see if ever I wanted to make myself feel quite righteous. I'm going to read that book. Because when you read what Hitler did, when you read what Himmler did, when you read what some of these folks did to people who were innocent, really, of any crimes, if I look at myself compared to Hitler, surely I'm righteous. Surely I'm doing okay, because I'm married with a couple of kids, and I go to church, and I do this, and I do that. What if I compare myself to God? What if I compare myself to Jesus Christ as written in the Gospels? How do I feel then? How often do I compare myself to Jesus? Because then and only then do I get a true reflection of how I am in my life. Sandra, if you could put up, I've just got a week of a PowerPoint uh, slide here. This is a, uh, it was really good because Nathan spotted that it was a target. We went to the curling um, a few months ago uh, as a men's group. When I say curling, um, I make sure that I've got this up rather than curling, you know, curling your hair. Um, So we went to the curling because if you go to a golf trip, then obviously some folks play golf all the time, so they're going to be better than everybody else. Curling, nobody in the group had ever done curling before, Uh, so we went to the curling. What I want to imagine is um, that there's four guys here that are playing curling. And they come to the, uh, the ice rink to play curling, and they, they don't bother reading the rules or that. This is an ice rink that sometimes has we kind of different games that they play. You know, it's not just the uh, ordinary, everyday stuff. They play games to make it more fun, to spice it up a bit, but they're not caring. They just want to play curling. So they get tore in, and the first guy takes his shot, Sandra. And he gets it just in the outside there. There's his, his, I can't even remember what it's called. I was there, I was ready to say a bowl. Stone, the curling stone, that's it. Uh, so he gets his stone just on the outside there, so he thinks, I'm, I'm not too bad at all. Then the second guy hits his shot. Oh, he's, he's pretty close here, that's fantastic, he's really pleased. The third guy, he hits his shot. There we are, and he's just on the outside here. And then the fourth guy, this would be me, right off the end. <laughs> that was me every single time. So the guy who hit this shot, he's thinking... That's it, fantastic, I've won. He's thinking, brilliant, he's telling all his pals, telling everybody else the rest of the thing, he's, I've won. And then the guy who owns the ice rink comes up and says, did you read the rules before you played, guys? And no, we were too quick. He says, oh, this is a special day today, we've mixed it up a wee bit, so it's actually know about who got closest to the centre. But the game that you were involved in was you needed to hit dead centre in order to win the game. And the guy that's there saying, hey, wait a wee minute. The guy said, oh, well, that's not too bad then, because although I'm here, if the aim of the game was to hit dead centre, even though he's closer, does it matter? It doesn't. Even though he's closer than him, does it matter? No, it doesn't, because the aim of the game was to hit dead centre. If I go to catch a bus and I'm five minutes late, or I'm 15 minutes late, and the bus is away, does it matter if I was five minutes late or 15 minutes late? No, it doesn't, because I missed the bus. 
Jesus shows this man here that it's not about comparing yourself to everybody else to make yourself feel good. If you are compared to God, here's God right here in the centre. Right here in the centre, God is there. And if we can't attain it, even if I'm here, we're going to church. Even if somebody else is here, we're doing good deeds. Here if somebody, or somebody's away through there, what does it matter? The aim of the game is to be dead centre. And unless we are dead centre, it doesn't matter how far away we are. We've missed the mark. MacArthur again said, God doesn't compare you to liars, to thieves, to cheaters, child abusers or murderers. God compares you to himself. His absolute holy character is the standard by which he measures your suitability from heaven for heaven. Apart from Christ, everyone falls short of that standard because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus shows this man a mirror. He shows him his sin because he compares him to God himself and to God's righteous character. Surely now the man's going to admit that he's a sinner. What does it say? Teacher, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. What are you playing at, mister? You've came to Jesus, you've asked for eternal life, you've asked how you attain eternal life. Jesus has shown you your sin, confess your sin, repent. And this guy says... I still, you know, comparing me to God, comparing me to the Ten Commandments, I'm still actually okay. A bit of a plonker, that's what we would call him nowadays. He's blown it. But you know, it's easy for us to look at this guy and judge him. It's easy for us to look at this guy and say, oh, I would never have done that. I would never ever have done that in my life. He's making a big mistake and I would never make a mistake like that. But you know, we live in a world that takes the same approach to salvation a world where there's very often no mention of repentance the man at the beginning in the clip was crying out for forgiveness the woman never once said look if you repent then God will forgive you she was saying you know, just, just keep living and it's going to be okay it's, it's whatever you think it's going to be there was no mention whatsoever about repentance but don't kid yourself you could walk into churches up and down the country and they'll also be talking about salvation. They'll be talking about the joys of salvation. They'll be talking about a loving God and a loving Jesus. And there'll be no mention of the need for repentance. If we are going to share the good news with people, we need to be honest with them. We see that at the very beginning that if this man had came to this lady here, she would have given him false hope. She would have said, you're okay because you've made it. But what does it say? It says, Jesus loved this man. Jesus loved this man too much to let him go away thinking that he was saved and everything was okay. If you love someone, don't give them a watered-down gospel. Don't allow them to believe that they're saved when they truly are not. Because salvation only comes when there is repentance. You know, it's important that when you share your faith with your family, with your friends, whoever it is, that you love them enough to be honest with them. You know, I remember somebody saying, I wonder if this man ever did get saved. Can I tell you something? See if Jesus had spun him a lie. See if Jesus had allowed him to think from this point onwards that he was saved. He would be going straight to hell. 
But the fact that Jesus was blunt with him, the fact that Jesus told him the truth, maybe this guy will be in heaven. Maybe a week later it suddenly dawned on him. Wait a wee minute. I know what Jesus was meaning here. This, this is all starting to make sense. Only because Jesus was up front with him. Only because Jesus loved him enough to be totally honest, to be totally blunt, and to tell him with, that without repentance there is no need for salvation. Jesus loved this man enough to give him a chance even there. And then what does Jesus say to the man? Something that can be quite confusing if we read it at face value. Jesus gives the man an opportunity. He says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. A lot of people would look at this and say, so does that mean that you shouldn't be rich? Does that mean that to have money is, is sinful? Jesus isn't saying that to the man. This man here is obviously putting his money before God. And that is a problem. And Jesus goes on to explain in the rest of the passage about how hard it is for rich men and women to enter the kingdom of God. Not because they're rich, because very often what happens is they put their riches in front of God. And Jesus says, if you get rid of that stumbling block, know that that will earn you salvation, but get rid of that stumbling block and then what? Come and follow me. Then you will inherit eternal life. And the passage tells us that at this the man's face fell sad. He went away because he had great wealth. The cost for this guy was too great. He wanted salvation without repentance. He wanted the benefits without the sacrifice. Notice Jesus doesn't chase after him. Jesus doesn't run after him and say, Oh, wait a wee minute, you know, I was maybe a wee bit blunt there. I could maybe, you know, change my wording to make it seem as if it's, it's a wee bit better for you, tickle your ears a wee bit. Jesus allows the man to go away in order that hopefully sometime in the future that wee light bulb will just click and he'll realise this is what Jesus was trying to say to me. I'll just finish with a quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther says, The life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. It's one thing to say Christ is a saviour. It's quite another thing to say he is my saviour and is my Lord. The devil himself can say the first. Only a true Christian can say the second. Can we sit here today, can I stand here today and say Jesus Christ is not only my saviour, because you can't take that away from him being your Lord. It's no saviour and then in a few years time, once I've reached a certain state of perfection, he becomes my Lord. If you accept Jesus as saviour, you accept Jesus as Lord. And that was what this man wasn't willing to do. Can we be here today and truly say Jesus is my saviour and is my Lord. Let's just pray before uh, I hand back uh, to Jamie. Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray and just give you thanks for your word, Lord. We give you thanks for the truth of your word, Lord. We give you thanks that it, it cuts away all the pretense, Lord. It cuts away all the things that we would put up as a block and it speaks directly into our hearts. Help us, Lord. Help me today, Lord, to have been challenged by your word. Help each and every one of us to live our lives every day, Lord, seeking to live for you as Saviour and as Lord. Help us, Lord, not to think that we can get away with sinning in certain ways. 
but help us Lord each and every day as we read in Philippians to be changed to be moulded into the character of your son the Lord Jesus Christ help us we pray Lord for we ask it in Jesus name Amen